What do you think? Why do you think making disciples uh, is so important? Is it so that we can see as many people as possible get to heaven? Is it so that we can be commended on that, you know, that great and awesome day when we all stand before the Lord to give an account for our lives? Is it because God wants us to be refined in the process of leading others to Him? Those are all good answers. Those are all noble answers, and certainly they all have some validity. But none of those reasons are the primary basis for the command by Jesus Himself to go and make disciples. So what is it? What is the big deal? To answer that question... We have to understand why Jesus came to the earth in the first place and why he's coming back again. And it is in that understanding that we will find the answer to the question that lies in between those two great events. Why are we here? We're here to make disciples, but why? Why is that so important? And once we realize the profound importance the answer to that question, we can better understand the links that those earlier followers of Christ, of Jesus Christ, that went to, to ensure that they made as many disciples as possible, despite the price that they had to pay, which for most of them was their lives. And even beyond that, the answer to this question, once fully understood and considered, it should drastically change our perspective of our time here on earth and even elevate our own sense of urgency to make disciples of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's such an important command that it was one of Jesus' final instructions to his followers before he left this earth. You know, when, when someone is about to leave the world, people who are uh, dying in the hospital, those who are about to be put to death, anyone who knowingly enters into a life or death situation, they will usually offer up their last words. And so often they will share that which is dearest and closest to their heart. That, that one thing that means more to them than anything else. My wife and I were at a, a ministry conference uh, a couple of weeks ago. And we were sitting in a breakout session with this guy, this pastor who was facilitating the, uh, the conversation. And he was talking about, you know, on your gravestone, there are usually two dates. There's the date you were born and the date you died. And there's a dash in between. And that dash is your life. It's the story of your life. And he said, if you could have one sentence in place of that dash on your headstone, what would you have it say? And he was going around the room and pastor after pastor, they were giving these profound answers and some really beautiful answers. And he got to this one guy sitting next to me and he said, Pastor... What sentence would you have in that dash on your tombstone? And the guy replied, I told you I was sick. (laughs) It's good to have a sense of humor. But the reality is, most people, their last words is that thing that they hold dearest to their heart. The one thing they want to convey or communicate to people before they leave this world. And when Jesus called together his closest friends on a mountain in Galilee, knowing that he was about to depart this world. What were some of his very last words to his closest friends? He told them, go and make disciples. 
So we're going to talk about this today in the context of our continuing study, of course, through the book of Acts in our sermon series entitled The Acts of the Apostles with today's message, which is entitled, What's the Big Deal About Making Disciples? Because as we've worked our way through the past 13 chapters, we've witnessed a reoccurring theme, the apostles going to incredibly difficult lengths, literally risking life and limb to fulfill that command of Christ, go and make disciples. And I know that we understand that it was an important command. I know that most in the church would agree that we should take it seriously and even try it from time to time, at least uh, as long as it's convenient and doesn't cost us too much. But I don't believe that we necessarily have a complete understanding of exactly why he left us with those instructions. So we're going to take a look at that today and see maybe what we can discover together. We'll be reading in the book of Acts in chapter 14. It's not a long chapter, so we'll read the entirety of it this morning as we usually do. We'll make stops along the way and dissect it a bit to try and get to the bottom of this question. Okay, what's the big deal about making disciples? So let's turn there and we're going to continue the story that we left off uh, last week with Paul and Barnabas. Uh, These guys have been forced now to leave uh, Pisidian Antioch and they've traveled another 90 miles down to Iconium, which is uh, Konya today in Turkey. And as was their pattern upon arriving at a new city, they enter the synagogue to share the gospel. Okay, so let's pick up the story. Verse 1. Now at Iconium they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So as was the case in most places where Paul ministered, he and Barnabas were met with a mixture of support and opposition. Right, Verse 3. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Okay, notice the determination to make disciples even in the face of opposition and hardship. Even though the unbelievers were stirring up others against Paul and Barnabas. Verse 3 says they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord. They were not easily dissuaded when it came to making disciples. In fact, they didn't leave Antioch until the unbelievers drove them out of the city. And here they are under persecution once again, and yet they remain and continue to make disciples. And we, don't, we need to be sure and not miss the last part of verse 3 where it says, The Lord bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Paul and Barnabas were not alone in their labor. It says the Lord was granting signs and wonders to bear witness to their work. They were not alone, and we're not either, by the way, when we're doing what He's called us to do. He's always there with us, just as he was with Paul and Barnabas. And it's not just some warm and fuzzy feeling that we talk about, like he's here with me all the time. No, he actually acts on our behalf to confirm the message that we bring. I can't tell you how many times the Lord has literally, physically acted on our behalf since we moved here, back from Alaska to start this church. He's performed miracles in our lives and on behalf of this ministry time and time again. So the work of making disciples could continue, right? So that others could see that he's in the work. You're never alone when you're following Christ. And he's not only with you every step of the way, but he will literally act on your behalf. 
and on behalf of the work that he's called you to, namely making disciples, right? Let's continue. Verse four, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Of course they did. There's no quit in these two. When one door closes and they're forced to leave someplace, they simply head to the next city and continue on doing what they're called to do. The instructions of Jesus to make disciples is driving them relentlessly. Now, if the goal of this life on earth is simply to make it to heaven when we die, why push so hard to make disciples? Because making disciples requires much more work and effort than making converts. Okay? Disciple-making and evangelism are not equivalent efforts. Conversion, evangelism is the first step in making a disciple, but it is in no way the totality of what it means to make a disciple. That's a lifelong process of following Jesus. And the way that we learn to do that, and the way we express His life through us, and the way that we share that life with others, is through the church, the body of Christ. That's why Paul established churches and appointed elders everywhere that he went. Otherwise, he could have just preached a good three-point sermon on salvation, given an altar call, and moved on. But he didn't. He often stayed in a city for a long period of time, making disciples and establishing churches, and appointing elders to pastor those churches, so the process of disciple-making could continue. But why not just tell people about Jesus? Lead them to salvation so they're guaranteed a spot in heaven and move on. Why the long-term commitment to each of these places? Because it isn't just about going to heaven when we die. Not by a long shot. Okay, let's keep reading and we'll find out why. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, that's their language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul, Hermes. I've been called a lot of things. But... (laughs) Never a Greek God. Because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? This is reminiscent of Peter and Cornelius. We are also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that should turn from these vain things, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nation to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these people's words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Okay, so God heals a man through Paul in front of a lot of other people, and they start going nuts. They're shouting in their own language, 
which scholars generally concur would not have been known to Paul and Barnabas, by the way. And so there's this local myth that was held in Lystra for a long time that Zeus and Hermes had once visited their region in human form. So the locals are going crazy because they think Zeus and Hermes are back. And of course, the people are getting all lathered up about it. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's happening because they don't speak Lyconian. But it didn't take long to figure out because the local priest of Zeus was bringing these animals down to the scene and preparing to sacrifice them to Paul and Barnabas. So this had to be a completely chaotic scene. And no matter how much Paul and Barnabas protest, the people are determined they're going to worship them. And as crazy as this scene sounds and sort of foreign to us, it's not really that different from what happens today with many Christian leaders. How many times have we seen someone start a church or some other kind of ministry and it's wildly successful and it grows and it grows and concurrently their popularity and their influence grows and grows until all of the accolades that the people who surround them are shouting start to take effect on that leader. And before you know it, rather than deflecting the praise and directing it to Jesus, they begin to believe all the hype. They begin to believe all the things that people say about them. And just as Herod's personal kingdom ended in an instant, as soon as he decided to allow the people to praise him as a God instead of giving the praise back to God, which we saw uh, back in Acts chapter 12, so many of our modern day church leaders that we've seen over the years have lost their ministries, have lost their churches, their influence, their popularity, because they allowed people to elevate them above Jesus Christ. Very rapidly takes you down a path of self-destruction. In fact, just this week, unfortunately, another very high-profile Christian leader uh, stepped down from his ministry because of a personal failure. And another extremely influential and high-profile pastor and author uh, has been watching his ministry disintegrate over the past couple of months as all kinds of revelations are coming about, uh, out about his behavior over the years. And these men and many before them have all admitted that the fame and public praise got the best of them. They allowed themselves to receive the praise instead of pointing people toward Christ. And the truth is, none of us are immune to that temptation because it feels really good to receive praise from others. And I'm not saying that you can't ever allow you know, someone to thank you or say, good job, we all need encouragement, certainly. But if you're constantly seeking praise from others, every time you accomplish anything noteworthy, and honestly, anymore, it doesn't even have to be noteworthy for people to expect praise. I constantly see people on Facebook fishing for compliments every time they burp their baby or uh, buy someone a cup of coffee or whatever. Honestly, to some extent, we need to get over ourselves. We need to understand that life isn't about what we can accomplish. It's about what He has already accomplished. And just to be clear, so you don't feel too bad, (laughs) I'm talking to myself as much as I'm talking to anyone. Okay? We all, each of us, needs to keep our focus on the one who is truly great and be encouraged, yes, but deflect praise to the only one worthy of praise. That's Jesus Christ. Okay, and that is exactly what Paul and Barnabas were trying to do here, albeit somewhat of a futile effort. So let's keep reading and we'll see what happens next. Verse 19. 
But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. It's interesting to me how Luke writes some of these passages. like, well, he just got up and walked away. I assure you it wasn't that simple. This is one of those you can't win for losing situations. Paul's trying his level best to deflect the praise away from himself. And meanwhile, the Jews from the last couple of stops on Paul's tour are still seething mad about what he was doing, trying to make disciples in their own backyard. So they travel about 100 miles and gather up an angry mob and come after him. And then they stone him until he was nearly dead. In fact, they thought that he was dead. So they take his lifeless body and they drag it out of the city and leave him there to rot. But the disciples come around and he gets back up, his body broken. Can you imagine the pain, the depth of the pain he must have been in physically? And yet he heads down the road with Barnabas. Why? To make more disciples. It's astounding. I don't think that we can be intellectually or scripturally honest after reading the horrific persecution that Paul and the other apostles faced, and many Christians in the first two centuries, certainly over and over and over again, and yet they continually got back up and kept going. I don't think we can be honest with ourselves and with others by believing that this was simply about getting people to pray a prayer of faith so they would have a reservation for heaven later on. Otherwise, they could have moved from place to place much quicker than they did, and yet they stayed to make disciples, which again takes far more time and effort and commitment than simply delivering a convincing message and then saying, good luck, and heading on your way. And they often paid a very heavy price for it, as we see. These early believers were all about making disciples, not simply making converts. When Jesus uses the word disciple... In the New Testament, he used the Greek word mathetes. It means learner or pupil. It's a lifelong process, a person who continues to learn. That definition doesn't say anything about being a convert or making a convert. On the other hand, when we see the word evangelist in the Bible, that's the Greek word evangelistes, which refers to the person who proclaims salvation through Christ. This is the one who leads you to that conversion event. Okay, so effective evangelism produces converts. Making disciples produces lifelong learners. Both, by the way, are very important. And they're also very different. And yet I would submit to you today that the Western church has made them one and the same. But they are not one and the same. Evangelism is one aspect of making disciples. And so although we're certainly expected to evangelize, of course... Jesus' command to his followers was much, much bigger than that. It encompassed that, but it was much bigger. It was a command to make people lifelong learners and follow him and all that he taught them. Right? In Matthew 28, 19, he said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What's verse 20 say? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. He didn't say, lead them to a personal relationship with me and then move on. Can you see how much bigger this is than simply making conversions? And yet in our country, the church loves to rack up big numbers when it comes to making converts. And we've been guilty of wearing those numbers on our collective chest like a badge. But making disciples, 
I mean, that's a horse of a different color. That's much harder to track. It's much harder to count. It's much more difficult to quantify. And it's messy and it's frustrating and there are setbacks and it's a long drawn out process that requires commitment and patience and understanding. And yes, sometimes suffering because not everyone will respond the way that we want them to or even expect them to. And sometimes, you know, if you've been through this, you pour out your heart and your life and your money and your time and effort and you put so much into making disciples And that person that you've been pouring into for years turns around and decides, you know what, this isn't for me. And and you're rejected just like that. And instead of getting back up after being severely hurt like Paul did, we hold on to our hurt a lot of times. And we say things like, I will never let them do that to me again. And we leave the ministry, we leave the church, and we begin to focus on things that make us feel good Instead of that which he's called us to. Which is what? Making disciples. That was his command. Now, all of this gets even deeper. Because if the goal, if the end game was simply to make it to heaven. Which is again what I believe the Western church has portrayed as the goal of every believer. If that were truly the goal. Why risk life and limb? Why travel through the most hellish conditions to go places where people persecute and attempt to kill you with rocks and throw you in prison and burn you at the stake and feed you to wild animals and watch you slowly die? Why put yourself through all of that when we could simply evangelize, make converts and move on? Honestly, why? Because getting to heaven is not the goal. It's not the end game, and it never was. Well, what is it then? I'm glad you asked. We're going to read the next few verses, the last few verses, starting at verse 21, and we'll talk about it. Let's finish the chapter. When they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. These are all the places that they had just been, right? The places where they had been run out of, the places where they'd been beaten, the places where they've been threatened, the places where they've nearly been killed. Well, let's turn around. I got a good idea. Barnabas, let's go back to all those places. And that's what they do. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. You see how important it was to them that disciples were made and solidified and developed. They already led people to the Lord. They could have moved on. They didn't have to go back. But they did, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That is the key. We're going to come back to that. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and had gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Okay, when the Jews, the Hebrew people throughout the Bible, talked about the end game, the ultimate goal what they talked about was the return of the Messiah. They didn't talk about 
just hanging on and doing the best they can until they can die and hopefully they'll make it to heaven. No, they talked about the return of the Messiah when he will come back and establish his kingdom right here on earth and rule and reign over his people. The idea of making it through this life somehow until we escape to some better place was a Hellenistic idea. It came from the Greeks much later. The Jews' focus was never on just getting to heaven. It was ultimately the return of the Messiah and the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. The word kingdom in verse 22 that we just read and throughout the New Testament is the Greek word basileia, and it means the reign of the Messiah. Paul was saying that it is through many tribulations that we will enter into the reign of the Messiah, not get to heaven. So when does that happen? Is it only when we get to heaven that we enter the reign of the Messiah? No. Listen to how Jesus responds to this question in Luke 17, 20 and 21. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. When Jesus came to earth the first time, he began the work of establishing his kingdom here on earth. And so, did all of that end when he ascended to heaven? Did all of that go away? No, not at all. So how is his kingdom established here on earth now then? Through us, through the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us. As we make disciples of Jesus Christ. And the Jews understood that was the goal. It was the return of the Messiah and the establishment and the ongoing establishment of his kingdom here on earth. But many of them and many still, of course, missed the fact that he did come and inaugurate his kingdom on earth. And of course, we know that that work won't be completed until he comes again. And of course, we eagerly await that day. But the end game isn't getting to heaven. Yes, there's a heaven, and yes, we believe in it. It's a temporary holding place. The end game is seeing his kingdom established here on earth because this is where we're going to ultimately end up after his second coming when he remakes the heavens and the earth and we reoccupy this place. The end game, the ultimate goal is establishing his kingdom here, his rule and his reign here on earth. And that work is ongoing now, or at least it's supposed to be through the church today. We're supposed to be continuing to establish his kingdom here on earth. And how do we do that? By making disciples until he comes back. And yes, yes, heaven gets sandwiched in there somewhere in between. And that will be wonderful for sure. But that's not the ultimate goal. Okay, the ultimate goal is his kingdom here on earth. That's why he told us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? When Jesus taught his followers how to pray, he didn't, he didn't say anything about, Father, help us to get to heaven. Help us to make it out of here. He said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done where on earth as it is in heaven. The goal is to see his kingdom established here on earth. And until his second coming that is accomplished through the church by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, can you see how once that becomes the ultimate goal, even more than making it to heaven one day? And we know that's part of it. But when the ultimate goal, when our focus is to see his kingdom continually established here instead of just trying to make it to heaven, can you see how we might become much more inclined much more willing to experience some discomfort in order to make disciples. 
right? Can you see how even when you're really, really hurt and rejected, you'd be more ready and willing to get back up again and keep making disciples? Because that's your goal. That's the point. That is our purpose. That is our mission. That is everything. Until he returns and finishes the work as only he can. Yes, Paul talked about pressing on toward the goal of attaining resurrection from the dead. And looking at that as heaven alone is short-sighted at best. Because he's talking about an eternity with Christ in his kingdom. And we're not spending eternity in heaven. We're spending it here. Until after he comes back again, right? I'm sure that heaven is going to be amazing. Yes, there's great reward in heaven. But we have to stop focusing on making it out of here by the skin of our teeth and start putting all of our focus on what he's called us and commanded us to do. Making disciples of Jesus Christ. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Yeah, and that's no walk in the park. Paul knew it. He said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 22. Peter knew it. He said, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Jesus certainly knew it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Matthew 16, 24. There is no gospel without suffering. And any gospel that promises glory without suffering is a false gospel. Hardship for the Christian is to be expected at times and is indeed necessary to our journey. And that suffering referred to so much in the Bible, by the way, isn't needless suffering. It's suffering for the sake of Christ. It's suffering for our testimony. It's suffering in the process of making disciples. Tribulation and glory are counterparts in the journey of the Christian. They actually go together. And obviously we don't like to hear that because we've become comfortable with an easy gospel to the fault of Christian leaders who have perpetuated that through the last two decades. But the great scholar and author R.C. Sproul, he said, We have freedom of assembly in the United States. Is it because suddenly our country is more open to the proclamation of the gospel? Or is it because in a very real sense the church militant has become the church impotent as we seek a safe way to experience our faith? It's time. In fact, it's long overdue that the church of America, this great sleeping giant, comes to terms with the idea of being uncomfortable for the sake of making disciples. It's time that we reconcile within our ranks and deep within our own hearts that this is going to be difficult at times. In fact, it may really hurt from time to time, this process of making disciples, but we need to get it settled, that reality that this isn't always going to be easy. And then we need to get on with it because that's why we're here. Making disciples is a big deal. And by the way, many of you are doing an amazing job. And I'm very humbled to be a part of it. So listen, don't let up. Don't give up. Don't let discomfort and hurt and rejection or anything else stop you. Because when you do that, when you decide to get back up 
after hardship, after being hurt, even after being rejected, when you get back up and you keep going, you will find a joy that you didn't know existed before. Paul certainly knew suffering for the sake of Christ as well as anyone, intimately. But he also knew the joy that came with it. Listen to what he wrote to the Philippian church. He said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Making disciples is anything but easy. It will test your mettle to be sure, but the joy that you will experience when you keep going, no matter what, is far deeper than the pleasures of an easy life. That's a fact. Making disciples. That's our mission. Let's make the most of it, eh? Let's, let's make disciples together, okay? Let's pray.